All right, well, good morning, Redeemer Bible Church. Um, if you came in late, my name is Justin Woodruff. I am not big carpenter. I'm a pastor down at, uh, I guess, up at Redeemer Stafford, um, a church that you just planted five months ago. And I have the opportunity, the privilege to lead there along with uh, Jenner Uhas and Brandon Whitus. And it's a joy to be here this morning. I can say that from my heart, I'm so excited to come and be here in this church. I was with this church by God's grace at the outset back in 2019. And so much happened in and through this church by God's grace in our life. And I just celebrate with you all. And I'm just very happy to be here to study God's word with you. So the reason I'm here, one of the reasons is we're a cooperating church, Redeemer Bible Church of Stafford. And in that cooperation, we want to do church life together and continue to be partners with Redeemer Bible Church of Spotsylvania. And part of that is preaching. And so Pastor Vic has come to Redeemer Stafford, and he invited me to come uh, here and preach this morning with y'all. Before we turn our attention to 1 Peter, we'll be back in the book of 1 Peter this morning. Uh, Pastor Vic had asked me to take a moment to acknowledge that this weekend, in particular today, is Right to Life Sunday. It's a particular day that's set aside to bring our attention to the tragedy that is abortion. And to highlight our commission as Christians to do something about that. We believe as Christians that life begins at conception. That life is created by God and for God. And you and I are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that every person, man, woman, and child is made in the image and likeness of God. That's our conviction as Christians according to his word. But as I thought about this last night, this is a heavy topic for a number of reasons. It's controversial. It's volatile. It's, it's heavy. And I thought, well, what do I have to say? What can I offer this morning to you all as it relates to the right to life? And I thought of a story. It came to my mind as I was going to bed last night. I thought of a story of a, a young girl, 21-year-old young lady, single mom in Southern California, three-year-old boy at home. And she got pregnant. Now her boyfriend had left her in high school, so she was a single mom at home in a broken home. Her father was an abusive alcoholic. Her parents were divorced, and she got pregnant for a second time as a 21-year-old. Her life was pretty difficult. She had just enough money to get by, and so she went to the doctors for her first appointment in her pregnancy. The doctor talked with her for a little bit. The baby looked to be healthy, and he said, you should abort this baby. She had an abortion. So she thought about it. She decided not to. She decided to carry the baby the full term. It's my mom. It's, it's Colleen Woodruff. And I, I, I bring up that story because um, this is an important topic for a number of reasons. But in my own life, like I'm so thankful to my mom for just choosing life and all the opportunity I've been given by God according to his grace. And we need to talk about it, but it's important you hear from the pulpit that if you have had an abortion or if you've encouraged an abortion, God loves you and he extends his mercy and his grace and his love freely to you as he does to all of us. We're all in the same boat. He extends forgiveness and I would encourage you to talk to somebody about it. Talk to me, talk to Pastor Vic. If you're thinking about an abortion or you know somebody who is, please don't. Oftentimes, abortions are pursued because there's a lack of hope. There is hope in this world that extends far beyond this world. Don't do it. If you know somebody, encourage them to look to Jesus Christ for hope. 
Over the last few years, my wife and I have had the privilege and the opportunity to adopt a number of children, as some of you know. Uh, we have 12 kids in the home right now. Five have been adopted. We have three foster children and four biological kids, and I love all of them. But as I was thinking about this topic again last night, I think, okay, what do I have to offer? I thought about the biological moms of the children that we've adopted and we're fostering, what they were up against. And they were up against some pretty significant challenges in life. Crazy challenges. And they have every reason in the world, according to our culture, to just have an abortion. And I celebrate them because they didn't. They chose life. And these kids have radically changed my life. They were up against all odds, and they are beautifully, they are fearfully and wonderfully made, and my life will never be the same. We are radically impacted, and they're going to have impact for Jesus in this world. So as you think about Right to Life Sunday, I would also just offer something to the rest of you all if you don't fit those categories. But you're passionate about this topic, and it actually makes you angry, and I understand why it would make you angry. It hurts me at a heart level. And so it's good and it's right to seek justice. Micah 6, 8, like we seek justice. I know many of you may have marched on Friday and we push for legislation and laws that don't allow for this in our country. But understand that legislation will never change the human heart. Like at the core of this issue is a faith issue. We put our faith in Jesus Christ and our hope in him alone. And hope in Jesus Christ is unfailing and it's expressed through love. When people experience God's love through his church, lives are changed. So as you advocate for life, let it be seen in how you live. Like, we should speak, but our lives should look radically different. Like, open your homes to orphans. Foster kids. Like, be the type of person that's so loving and compassionate, humble and kind and gracious that people want to talk to you about this issue. You're not the Christian that stiff arms folks who are struggling. But they're like, I'm going to go to you and talk to you. And if they need help, you help them. This church does that. I'm a product of that. Redeemer Bible Church, Spotsylvania, from the outset, has set this tone early and often. Alyssa Boltink leads the orphan care ministry. Talk to her about what you might be able to do. Choices Pregnancy Center, the Pegrams, and Maria participate there along with others. There is opportunity to say something, live a life where people come to you and then do something with it. But ultimately, don't go angrily barking at folks because they don't agree with you. Demonstrate God's love for them and doing something for them. And so... We just want to highlight that this morning, and I would encourage you to consider that as we, we're going to pray for the service, and we're going to talk through First Peter, but we're called to do something here. So would you bow your heads with me and commit our service to the Lord? Jesus, we love you. We are here, and we're gathered because we love you, and we pray that you would be honored in this time together around your word according to your spirit, and we pray that you would change our hearts first, that you would change our hearts and grow us into the image and likeness of your son, and that people would see the light of Christ and the hope that comes from him in and through us. We can't do it. We need your help, and we pray for it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, would you open, please, the first Peter We'll be in chapter 3 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, it's near the end of the Bible, right before uh, First and Second John. 1 Peter chapter 3, it's epistle, it's a letter. I'm not going to give a whole lot of context here because I, you've been walking through this week after week uh, with Pastor Vic and others. But what we saw last week 
is that Peter takes some time, and we are in verses 13 through 17 in 1 Peter chapter 2 last weekend. And Peter takes some time to talk about human institutions that govern society, specifically government. Pastor Vic talked about the role of government in society, and more particularly, more specifically, our Christian response to government. That was the focus of last week's sermon. And I would encourage you, if you haven't heard that sermon yet, to go listen to it. It's very helpful and practical, especially in light of our current circumstances in the United States. I would also encourage you to read the newsletter where Pastor Vic wrote about this in some more detail. It's very helpful as you contemplate the role of government and the church and the family in these concentric circles that have unique roles that can work together but often don't. But for our time together this morning, I was asked to preach on 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. So we're skipping a couple things here, but we're going to come back to them in the weeks to come. Because after he talks about the role of government, Peter addresses the workplace. Specifically in the first century, the role of servants and masters. What it looks like in the workplace to submit to authority as a Christian. And then he finishes in chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3, by talking about the family and the home and the role of a wife and a husband and the authority structure that God's ordained for us as Christians. But the passage we're going to be in this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3, or 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 17 is a summary statement. It's going to bring all these teachings to a conclusion, and the beauty is it's for everybody. So as we read, it's going to say, finally, all of you. And who does Peter mean by all of you? All of you. Like you, me, everybody, then, now, forever. So this teaching is for everybody, which is really helpful. And there's utility here. You're not going to have to wonder what you've got to do with this teaching. Like there's something all of us need to do with this this morning. And really, as I read through it, it drove me to one question. And he, he brings the question up here. And the question is, do you want to love life and see good days? I encourage you to write that down if you're taking notes. Do you want to love life and see good days? And I, I think the answer is yes. I, I don't know anybody who's like, no, I don't want to love life and see good days. That sounds terrible. Like, I think the answer is yes. Christian, non-Christian, I want to love life. I want you to love life and see good days. So probably a better question is how? So maybe write that down. Like, how do we love life and see good days? Especially in light of those three categories I just described. But for most of you, if you look at government, perhaps, federal, state, local government, and the policies and laws that have been enacted over the last several years, it can be a little discouraging. Like it seems like oftentimes the government is working to pass legislation that flies in the face of my Christian convictions. Huh. Many of you have jobs, a workplace environment that's hostile, even toxic towards the things of the Lord. How do I love life in that environment? And sadly, in the home, there are many broken marriages that are characterized by coldness and despair and discord. Like, how do you love life and see good days as a Christian in this reality? That's a good question. And Peter doesn't leave us to wonder. He gives us some, some insight here on what that looks like for the Christian then and now. So as is the tradition of the church, would you stand where you're at, please? We're going to read through this passage. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 8 through 17, I'll read aloud if you'll follow along. Verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. 
Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. May God bless the reading of his word. Y'all can have a seat. So what is the good life? Probably should start there. What, what is the good life? And as I thought through this, I don't know how you would define that. Well, how, how would culture in the world define what the good life is? I made a list here. You can add to it or maybe you disagree. Success. You know, success usually indicates a good life. Lots of money, a healthy, fit body. Maybe a few houses, some nice cars, lots of stuff. Tropical, exotic vacations, popularity. If you're going to have the good life, you have to have a lot of likes, a lot of followers. Good food, a beautiful boyfriend or girlfriend, and comfort. You have to have comfort if you're going to have the good life. Absolutely no struggle or pain. Not, a, not if you want the good life according to this world and culture. I need to live for myself an extravagant, self-promoting, self-gratifying, self-preserving luxury, and then I can enjoy the good life. I think that might characterize what the world might say. Best I can tell as I look around. But according to Scripture, according to what we just read, that's not the answer that the Apostle Peter gives us. You won't find it here. This is super counterintuitive and countercultural. How is it that we might love life and see good days? Well, I'm going to offer you at least three things from this passage that Peter gives us. Three ways that you can love life and see good days. And then one byproduct. If you do these things, there's going to be one outcome from that you need to be prepared for. Because if you do these things, something's going to happen and you don't want to be caught off guard. So let's jump in. Right from the outset, we're going to see that loving life, the good life, doesn't come from pursuing possessions, pursuits, and the passions of this world, but it starts here, like in the human heart. How you behave and how you speak determines if you're going to experience the good life as God's designed it. So look again at verse 10. That's where I'm going to start. And this is a quote from Psalm 34, King David, verses 12 through 16. So the apostle Peter quotes a psalm in defining what the good life is. Let's read it again, verses 10 and 11. Whoever desires to love life and see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. There are six imperatives, six commands right there. If you want these things, do these things. Something is required of you. You have to do something. What does it say we're supposed to do? How we speak matters. So don't speak evil. Don't speak deceit. How we live matters. Turn from evil and do good. And don't just seek peace. Hey, there, Chase after peace. But as I read that, it can be kind of broad. I don't know if you ever come to a church service. Like, that was really good, but it's so broad, I don't know what to do with that. Well, Peter narrows it down for us at the outset of the passage. Look back at verse 8 and 9. So if you're wondering, what does it look like to seek peace and pursue it, and to turn away from evil and to do good, and to keep my mouth from speaking deceit and evil? What does that look like practically? What does Peter say here? Have these things. 
unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Wow. Just think about that for a moment. What would your life look like if you had unity and sympathy and love and tenderness and humility? That just characterized you day in and day. Your relationships, your home, your workplace, your response to government. If that characterized the, the outflow of your heart, how would that change how you, you enjoy your life? And you, you see your days, whether they're good or bad. It's incredible. We think about those terms. Like, how do you cultivate unity? That's the outset term. How do you cultivate unity? Because it doesn't come naturally. I, I don't think I need to convince you all. Like, these things, at least for me, maybe they happen for you. But unity, sympathy, love, tenderness, humility, they don't just flow out of me naturally. Right? That's a fruit of the Spirit. And unity is where he starts. And, he, and unity is cultivated by these other things. What is sympathy? You feel with somebody. So when someone's suffering... You actually experience their pain. When you walk through their difficulty with them, love implies service, care, brotherly love or affection. You desire to serve and care other folks. Tenderness, a tender heart. You feel for people. Like you don't just experience their pain, but you desire their good and humility. You recognize that their needs are more important than yours. And you work towards those. That's what it looks like in the Christian life. If you want to love life and see good days, your life will be characterized by that. But he doesn't stop there. He says, don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay reviling for reviling. That's not a familiar word to me, criticizing. When someone insults you, don't insult them back. When someone does wrong to you, don't do wrong back. That's not natural. That doesn't happen apart from God's grace and his power in our lives. But it says, instead, I want you to bless people. That's crazy. When somebody hurts me and speaks bad about me, I'm supposed to bless them. And in this context, it means to speak well of them to seek God's favor in their life. Why? Like, why would we do that? It says in, in verse 10, you were called to this. Christian, you're called to this. It's not optional. The moment you gave your life to Christ, you were brought from death to life. You were born again. You were called to something radically different. You were called to this. And the Amazing part about this as I was reading through it is the language that Peter used is almost exactly what Jesus shares in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, as he walks through the Beatitudes, the blessing in verses 9 through 12, and I'm historically bad at marking pages in my Bible, but it's right here. You don't have to turn there. Listen, this is Jesus in one of his first public teachings to the crowds and his disciples as it relates to what produces blessing, God's favor in your life. Where can you find the goodness of life? And Jesus says this in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peter was there for that. How do you love life and see good days? Obedience to God's design for your life, according to Jesus' design for your life, in a way that doesn't make sense in our culture. Pursue a life according to God's design and not the world's priorities. I would start there. It's very practical. So what do you do with that? Take those five characteristics, what, what's listed here, and, and just start asking for God's help here. I was doing it on the drive-in this morning. 
the chaos of my house at breakfast time, trying to sneak out to give a sermon, and there's some stuff breaking out that needs to be addressed. I need these things. I need to cultivate unity in my home and sympathy and love and tenderness and humility as I try to discipline my kids. Pray for these things. Well, pray for me. (laughs) But the obvious question in this, how do we do that in the real struggle of life? Like when we walk out these doors and there's a real struggle. And I was reminded of this yesterday. I sat next to Pastor Vic at a memorial service for Clint Clifton. He spoke on it last week. He's younger than me, father of five children. Oldest is 21, youngest is 12. He is a church planner. He's a pastor, wonderful husband, a father, incredible thriving ministry. And he died tragically in a plane crash a week and a half ago. How do we love life and see good days in the middle of that? What does it say here? How do we do all this? Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Like, how do you love life and see good days in the middle of the mess of this world through prayer? You can't do these things on your own. That's the whole point of the Christian life. You absolutely need to be on your face before the Lord, asking and begging and seeking his favor in your life. Because you can't manufacture this. It has to be supernatural. That's the beauty of the Christian life. I hope you can see it. So the language here, the eyes of the Lord are on that righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. God is spirit. God the Father doesn't have physical eyes and ears, but it's language. It's a metaphor that indicates a closeness. Like as you do these things, and they're very hard to do, and they're impossible to do on your own, and you go to the Lord in prayer asking for his help, he sees you, and he hears you, and he provides for you. That's called closeness. That's called intimacy. When someone hears you and sees you, you have a relationship with them. It's intimacy. Your intimacy with God through prayer fuels your obedience, and your obedience allows you to live the good life and to see good days. Do you see the connection? At the memorial service yesterday, it was characterized by prayer. They got it. You can't stand up and celebrate the life of an incredible man who was taken too soon, at least according to our perspective, and express joy and say, I love life, and I'm seeing good days. You can't do that unless you're desperately asking God for help. And that's exactly what they did. Speaker after speaker, pastor, family member, friend, prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed, and we praised God, and we prayed. And we opened scripture, and we prayed, because we can't do it on our own. So if you're struggling here, like, Justin, I just don't see it. I don't feel it. I know what scripture says, but I can't do it. Let me encourage you, like prioritize prayer. It's simply communicating with God. You don't have to use fancy words. I would encourage you to look at Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians 3. If you need a template, but basically get on Psalm 103 and just beg God for help to do what he's called you to do, to experience the life he's called you to live, and he'll answer your prayers. There's a closeness here and an intimacy that fuels your obedience. Don't try and do it on your own. You can't. What's the third way that we can love life and see good days according to this passage? And this one is wildly counterintuitive. And the answer is to suffer well. To suffer well, you can experience the life that God's designed for you and love it and see good days if you recognize this reality for every Christian, every Christian, to suffer well. 
Just look at the passage. You know, if you look at all 10 verses, it says, as you live out the life that God's called for you, and, and it's very specific here, so not just suffering for suffering's sake, but as you live out the life that God's called for you, you read this book and you do these things. You don't repay evil for evil, and you don't revile those who revile you, and you seek peace and pursue it. It's going to cost you. It's going to hurt. It's going to cause you to suffer. And Jesus, through the apostle Peter, is telling us to suffer well. Look at this. It says, Others will do evil to you in verse 9. They'll revile and slander you, verse 16, and you will suffer. Can't suffering produce a life that sees good days? According to this passage, the answer is yes. Yes, suffering can produce good days. That's not logical. How do we trust something that doesn't make sense? We look at the source. Look at the source. This uh, week and a half ago, I'm trying to give you an analogy. I don't know if it'll help. It helps for me, so I'm going to share it with you. A week and a half ago for work, I traveled to Switzerland. It's a hard job that I have. I went to this place called um, Zermatt in Switzerland. Never been. Right at the base of the Matterhorn. Incredible. And in my full-time job, I fly helicopters. So they sent me out there to train on mountain rescues. Train with some of the best pilots in the world. The mountains there are incredible, like 14, 15,000 feet with sharp valleys. And this unit called Air Zermont, all day long running rescue missions at the ski slopes where very wealthy Europeans and folks from Russia and North Africa come to ski and vacation. And most of them aren't very good at skiing, so there's a lot of accidents, and they stay very busy. And I spent a lifetime in the military, now my current job, flying helicopters. It's just what God has given me to do. And I've been through a ton of training. And training in mountain flying is dangerous. There's small margins for error. Because of the altitude and the winds and the snow or the dust, in this case it was snow, there's, it's high risk. It's very, I've had a lot of close calls, and so I was sent there to learn how to do it even better. But I, I felt pretty confident in my basic abilities. And the first day I flew uh, with one of the pilots, Gerald, and then with Robbie. And these guys had, in, and uh, I flew with um, another pilot, I can't remember her name, Julie from France. They had thousands of hours, like 20,000 hours of flight time. And so we sat down for the course, and there really wasn't a class. And then we got the call for the mission, and we launched, and he's just having me fly. And I'm terrified because it's windy, and it's snowy, and there's a person that's actually hurt. And I, I'm like, okay, I know how to do this. We have to fly into the wind. You, you always fly into the wind in a helicopter. That's less power required. Like, it's just common sense. It's what I've been trained to do. Everybody knows if you fly into the wind, you figure out where the winds are with a couple recce passes, and you fly into the wind. And Robbie who I was flying with, the Swiss man, heavy accent. He understood about half of what I said. He's like, just go straight in. I was like, but, but, but the wind's on my screen, and we have a 22-dot tailwind. Like, if we can go straight in, we're going to burn it in. It's going to be over. And he, like, he called me a name I won't repeat. He's like, just go straight in. <laughs> and I'm in the trust tree at this point because it's Robbie's helicopter, but it's my life. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And I'm looking at the power, and the wind's beating down in the snow. And we land, no problem. That was crazy. And then we do it again. And he's telling me, like, if you come in low below the wind and you do it, you set your power and you have an escape and you have a reference, don't worry about the winds. That's super counterintuitive. But at the end of the week, I was a believer. Why? Because of the source. He had done mountain rescues at 23,000 feet in Nepal. He, He had done rescues in Russia and all over the world. He knew what he was talking about. He had experience. And I had to trust him. I didn't want to. And after I did, I realized, like, so much more efficient, so much safer And he has the life to back it up. He's done it all his life. Why do I bring that up? The Apostle Peter is someone that you can trust. He knows a little bit about suffering. 
a little bit about Christian. So he's not writing kind of hypothetically. He's been through it. This letter was written near the end of his life in ministry, probably around 80, 60, 62, somewhere around there. He's going to be crucified upside down just a few years later. But he's looking back on his life, and he's telling us in this passage, if you want to enjoy life and see good days, you want to love life, suffer well. How do we see that in his life? Acts chapter 4, he's preaching the gospel. He's arrested and threatened. Acts chapter 5, he's still doing gospel work. He's arrested again. This time he's beaten and he's threatened. Don't do it again. Acts 7, he sees his friend Stephen martyred for being a Christian. And Acts 12, his good close friend James, he's martyred, killed with the sword. Peter's thrown in prison facing a similar outcome. Like this man has walked through suffering, but he's walked through it well. There's a difference. There's a difference. If you read these accounts that I just mentioned in the aftermath of the arrests and the beatings and the difficulty, the church grows, the disciples are strengthened, and, what, and after their beating, they're rejoicing. They counted a, a blessing to be um, persecuted for the sake of Christ. And in suffering well, they communicate a message of hope to the world around them, and their life is full. Doesn't make sense. It's like Robbie. I'm flying with, this doesn't make sense, Robbie. The, Peter, this doesn't make sense. We have to suffer to love life and see good days. But look at the source. And who did Peter learn from? Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. He came not to be served, but to serve and give us life as a ransom for many. Like Jesus is our example. If you want to love life and see good days, recognize this need for every Christian. Because the reality is, if you do what this book tells you to do, in our current culture, suffering will come in any number of ways. It is difficult. But recognize our call to suffer well through this. I saw this again yesterday. During the memorial service, and I, I imagine many of you have been to memorial services. I've, I've seen a number of different approaches to this. The reality of death is imminent for all of us, but sometimes it can be a very, for understandable reasons, somber and sad and just hopeless event. But yesterday was a praise service really it was a praise service like my heart was full I was crying but my heart was so full and the most impactful moment of the whole afternoon for me or the morning was when Clint Clifton's 21 year old son got up on stage 21 years old Noah Clifton and he has every reason in the world to be bitter and angry at God how, how could you take my dad Noah's going to get married in two months. He's engaged. He's going to go plant a church. His dad was helping go plant a church in Florida. And now just like that, his best friend was taken from him. But Noah wasn't angry or spiteful or even depressed. Like he got up there and he just praised the Lord. And he said, my dad, he loved the church. He loved our family. And he loved Jesus Christ. And when I was a little kid, I was so worried that I might turn out like my dad. But now I'm terrified that I won't be like my dad because he's everything I want to be. He lived for Jesus. I don't want to live for Jesus just like my dad. Like that's what it looks like to suffer. Well, you take the tragedy of life and you put it in the context of what it means to be a Christian. And you give people hope because you're living with hope. You want to live life, love life, and see good days, suffer well. As a Christian, so there you go. It's, it's not especially profound. you probably heard this before, but this in action produces results. God's calling you to do something very specifically, to live differently, to be obedient to his word. And as you do that, he's calling you to cry out to him in prayer, 
to pursue an intimacy with God that you can't manufacture. You have to ask him for it. God, I need more of you to do what I can't do on my own. And as you do that, you're going to face difficulty. It's going to happen. So don't shy away from it. When you face hard things in your life, don't think, I must be doing something wrong. Or I don't have enough faith if I'm struggling with a disease or illness or a tragedy. No, no, no. See, this is your platform to communicate to the watching world that there's a hope that far out lasts. It extends far beyond what's right in front of us. That's how you love life and see good days. But here's the outcome, and this is really important for us to talk about. When you do these things, something's going to happen. Guaranteed. If you do these things that Peter describes, people are going to notice. Because they're not common. What Noah did yesterday at this memorial service is not common. And people are like, what gives? Like, what's your problem? Or more specifically in the passage, look at verse 15. It says, always being prepared to make a defense to who? To anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. People are going to ask you, why do you have this hope? How can you walk through this in a way that I just can't understand? And it says, be ready. So that's the outcome. Be ready for that moment, and it's not going to happen when you expect it. Peter knew about this. The apostle Peter, remember at Pentecost, he's in the upper room with disciples. The Holy Spirit comes upon him in flames of fire, in a rushing wind. They start speaking in languages. The people understand, praising God, and suddenly everyone wants to know what's going on. Tell us what's happening. Peter didn't plan for that, but what does Peter do? The first Christian sermon, he gets up and he delivers the gospel. In the next chapter, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are walking to the temple to pray. There's a lame beggar at the gate. He didn't plan for that. By God's power, he heals the beggar. What happens? People flood to him. They want to know what's going on. He didn't anticipate it. He didn't prep a sermon. He just gave a reason for the hope that was in him. He preached the gospel. The same will happen in your life if you do these things. By God's grace, through his power. And it doesn't mean you have to have every theological and biblical and historical answer, answer dialed. And I think too often when I learned this verse as a younger man, I thought, man, I need to be able to make a defense. That's apologetics. Super intimidating. And I need to know every theological aspect of this book and have every verse. And it's not what it says. What does it say? Give a reason for hope that you have. You all know, if you're a Christian, you know the answer. Give a reason for the hope that you have. So don't be intimidated thinking, I can't share the gospel until I know every answer, because you won't. I'm supposed to graduate from seminary in May. I have more questions than answers, and I've spent years studying this book, but I know the reason for the hope that I have. It's Jesus Christ. So just speak it in your language, not some fancy theologian's language. Just communicate the love of Christ in a way that's grabbed your heart and see what God does with it. Super hard. Super hard. It's different. I was telling Molly, my wife, this week after coming back from the trip. You know, I can stand up here in front of y'all, and, and many of you I know, some I don't, and I can preach the gospel. But in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, I found it can be very challenging. Have, have you experienced this? In Switzerland, when I was there, there was a paramedic who flew on my helicopter. It was my helicopter, the one I was in, in the trust tree. <laughs> and his name was Patrick. It goes by Patty. He's a Big dude, looked like a Viking, big orange beard. Years, 18, 19 years at Ayers, Vermont. Thousands of mountain rescues. And 
just an incredible guy. They made a show about this unit that was on Netflix. It was called The Horn. I think Pastor Vic watched it. And I didn't realize that he was, a, he was one of the featured guys in this for all his amazing rescues. And so the last day I watched it, because we'd go out into town and have dinner. Everybody like, hey, Patty, Patty. And we went to one restaurant. They didn't have any seats. And then it was Patty. So then we got a seat. I'm like, what? You're, who are you? So Patty, we developed a relationship during the week. I don't know. We, we just, we hit it off. So we go to the gym after our shift. We go to dinner, and immediately I recognize this guy has a soft heart. What I mean by that is he wanted to talk about life. He didn't just want to talk superficially. And he told me, you know, Justin, I was raised in a Christian home, a nominal Christian home. Uh, but then I just started chasing after the world. I just made work my priority. I chased after women. I actually got married, but my wife left after two years and took my son to Germany. I haven't seen him in 10 years. And so I just started chasing harder after what the world had for me. And he described his life as riding a bicycle as fast as he could ride it, pedaling as fast as he could. And everything was good until he had a rock, divorce. And he lost his child, another rock. And he just starts getting wobbly. He's like, Justin, I feel like I'm out of control. And if I don't change something, I'm going to crash. You know what I heard? Oh, this guy needs to hear the gospel. Like, this is it. I need to give a reason for the hope that is in me. And I, I'm a pastor. I was like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and so I knew I had a week there. I knew how much time I had. And so we went out every night. We'd have intentional conversation around a workout and dinner. And, and I'd share some of my story. And then the last night, I'm like, this is it. Like, I've got to do something with this. So knowing my personality, I made sure I wrote a letter at least. I wrote out everything, thought through it. And I was like, I'm at least going to give this to him. But I got to speak it. And we went to dinner, and he brought stuff up again, and we had a great conversation. But it was just sort of, it wasn't the gospel. And so as we're walking back, and he just walked in my hotel room, or the, where my hotel was at, and he'd go off to where he was staying. About two minutes out, and I was like, Lord, please help me. And I just turned, like, Patty, do you know what the gospel is? It's super awkward, right? And he's like, yeah, it's music. I like gospel music. I was like, No! <laughs> No, the gospel. Do you know what it is? He's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I was like, well, here we go. And I was like, the gospel. And I just start talking. It was like word vomit. I just start talking all over the place. It, it was not articulate. It, I, I didn't say it well at all. And he's just kind of staring at me with a smile. And I'm talking. And we get to where uh, he's going to say goodbye. And I stop talking. I just stare at him. And I don't know what to say. So I say, can I pray for you? He's like, yeah, of course. So I put my arm around him, and I just pray over his life. I start crying. <laughs> and uh, I look at him, I love you. And I give him a hug, and I say goodbye. Now, the good news is Brandon White, one of the elders, is going back out there in October. And I'm going to equip him to do a much better job with Patty. <laughs> but Patty wrote me afterwards. And he's been voice texting me. He said this to me. He said, I was supposed to be in Papua New Guinea with another job the week that you were here, but the last minute my paperwork got delayed and I ended up being here. And now I can see that God wanted me to be here with you so we could have these conversations. So, so see this. Like, you don't save people. God saves people. You're his witness. You're his ambassador. And all he's called you to do is give a reason for the hope that you have. It doesn't have to be articulate or perfect. You just need to be obedient. And you know the answer. If you're a Christian, you know the answer. Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected. Life in him. 
God changes hearts, not you. So we'll finish here. I have one more question for you, and then we'll wrap up. Does anybody ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you? Does anybody ask you that question? Has anybody asked you that question? And I know for some of you, many of you, the answer is yes. Your life is so radically committed to Jesus and your obedience and your prayer and the way that you suffer well that people can't help but ask you, like, how? What, what is this hope that you have? I actually saw it yesterday. As many of you know, Pastor Vic has a lot on his plate. Full-time job. Growing, thriving church. He's a wonderful husband. He's a dad to four kids. And recently, they welcomed a baby into their home. Significant medical challenges. And their goal, their hope, is that they might adopt her if that's the need. That doesn't make any sense. And he does it, him and Maria do this with joy. Like I meet with him once a week and you bring up the baby and there's just joy, palpable joy. I talk about the church with him, there's joy. In his work, there's joy. Now like, how does that happen? And I heard somebody even yesterday talking to Pastor Vic, like, how do you do it? He gets that question all the time, how do you do it? So if that's you, if you're walking there and people ask you, don't miss the opportunity. So let me encourage you, in those moments, speak the name of Jesus Christ. I know there's a tendency to want to be humble. I, I don't know, you know, and change the subject because you don't want to talk about yourself. No, no, these are little windows of time. Speak the name of Christ, and you did that yesterday. Like point directly to Jesus, even in an awkward way. If nobody's asking about your hope, why? If nobody's asking you or noticing about the hope you have in Christ because of the way you obey in your prayer life and the way you suffer well, why is that? What do you need to change in your life? People should see something in your life that's different. Not because you're amazing, but because God's amazing and he lives in you. Think on these things. Where do you need to make some tweaks? Like as you read this list of things God's called you to do, are you doing them? Or is it just grudging obligatory obedience? Are you trying to do them on your own and you're getting discouraged and overwhelmed because you don't pray about these things consistently? Think about that. Or when you suffer, do you just complain? I know that's one of my challenges when things are difficult. I, I call it venting. It's complaining. It doesn't communicate hope to the watching world. When you suffer, it doesn't mean there's not real grief and agony and tears, but how you communicate that and the hope you have matters, so suffer well. Is that where you're struggling? Because people should be asking you about these things. And if you don't yet know hope, I don't want to take for granted everybody at church service knows what I'm talking about. If you don't know unshakable, eternal, perfect hope, like, hear what I'm about to say, that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the Anointed One, and he came to earth for you. He lived a perfect life that you can't live. You haven't lived it, you won't live it. And he knowingly and willingly went to the cross at Calvary to die a death that you and I deserve. He bore the wrath of God for our sins. Why? Because he loves you. And he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He's coming back one day to judge the living and the dead. And he sends his spirit to empower you to live a life that you can't live. Why? So you can love life and see good days. So if you don't know Jesus Christ, put your hope in him, your trust, your confidence. Commit your life to him and watch how life flips upside down in ways you never imagined. Like that's what we preach here. It's the gospel. Did not say it like that to Patty. <laughs> so let me invite you to put your things away. Uh, the worship team, y'all can come up here. We're going to conclude and just pray. Not just pray. We get to pray. What a privilege. We're going to pray to God. 
I'm going to lead us in prayer, but I would invite you, as you think about these things, obedience, prayer, suffering, well, sharing the gospel and the hope that you have, that you would just take a moment to reflect in your own life based on this passage, where you're at, and where God would have you be. So would you bow your heads, please? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word. Your word is true, and it's perfect, and it's exactly what we need. And I pray this morning that your word would shake us up, that you would grab our hearts, our affections for things that matter most, that if there's anybody here who has not surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, that they would put their faith in you today. They would trust in you today and commit their entire life to your purposes and plans. And for the rest of us who identify as Christians, we say this book is true. Jesus is who he says he is. I pray that we wouldn't stop there, but every day we would submit to your design for our life. It may be counterintuitive. It may be super difficult, but it's best for our good and your glory. So please have your way in our life today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.